The Congressional Baseball Classic has been around for over a century. A former professional ball player turned congressman organized the first game in 1909. And since then, congressional Democrats and Republicans have squared off against each other every year for one day in a friendly game of baseball. But in 2017, the congeniality that marks the time period leading up to this event was interrupted by a hate-filled individual who targeted Republicans when they were holding a practice at a field in Northern Virginia. The shooter was a resident of Illinois. He had bought his firearms from a gun store in his home state, and so that meant he had passed a background check in order to purchase his weapons. He transported his guns to Virginia and specifically sought out and targeted Republican members of Congress. Well, he chose their practice field as the location where he would strike. He shot and wounded several people, one of them being House Majority Whip Steve Scalise. In the days following the shooting, gun control advocates used this tragedy to claim that enacting more gun control would prevent shootings like this. This is Firing Back, a podcast from Gun Owners of America. I want to welcome you back to this podcast, Firing Back. My name is Eric Pratt, and I'm the Executive Director of Gun Owners of America, and I'm here with my co-host, Remzo Martinez. Eric, it's great to be back. And folks, welcome. If this is your first time listening, thank you so much. If you've been listening with us since episode one, you're even cooler. But I want to go ahead and just kind of start things off. In this episode, what we want to look at are some of the common gun control arguments that you see frequently made, either on the media or even just around the water cooler at work. And I want us to take a look at some of the key gun control supporters and opponents who have actually dominated the playing field over the last several decades. But anyway, just a moment ago, Eric, you were explaining how gun control advocates tried to use the Northern Virginia baseball shooting to push for more gun control. But weren't there congressmen who had, you know, a much different take on what the response should have actually been? Oh, yeah, absolutely there was. Uh, Take Republican... Representative Barry Loudermilk, uh, as an example, he was at the field that morning, and he's pointed out since then that Congress's failure to enact nationwide concealed carry reciprocity greatly contributed to their inability to fire back. Now, carry reciprocity means that if you can legally carry in one state, then you can carry all around the country. So Loudermilk says that he carries a gun when he's back home in Georgia, And that if this shooting had happened there, the gunman wouldn't have gotten too far because either he or one of his aides could have easily stopped him. In fact, during the shooting, one of his aides was actually in his car, maybe 20 yards behind the shooter. And Representative Loudermilk says that that aide normally carries a 9mm in his car and that he was well positioned so he could have had a clear shot at the guy. The problem is that while they could have all legally carried at that baseball field in Virginia because Virginia and Georgia have reciprocity, they couldn't have taken their guns with them back into Washington. Washington, D.C. doesn't allow carry reciprocity with any state. So that means 
they would have been stuck in Virginia and wouldn't have been able to get back to work. Now, I don't know. You know some might say that's a good thing, right, that Congress doesn't go back to work. Uh, but look, I mean, you, you can joke about Congress taking an extended vacation. The fact that innocent people were left defenseless is no laughing matter. And that was Representative Loudermilk's point. Gun control prevented them from being able to defend themselves. So earlier you were saying that those who are in favor of gun control always see more gun control as the answer, but they want more restrictions, even though they frequently don't know what gun control already is on the books. Am am I correct in that? Absolutely. Uh, It doesn't matter how many laws are on the books. All they know is that, or all they think they know, is that more gun control must be the answer after every shooting. Uh, We saw this in the hours and days after the baseball field shooting in Northern Virginia. Gun controllers began stepping all over the the injured bodies to call for more gun restrictions. Uh, One of them, Shannon Watts, who heads up a group for billionaire Michael Bloomberg said the answer to this tragedy is not more guns and not fewer gun laws. So in other words, she wants more gun control. Uh, Another one, anti-gun journalist David Frum, he tweeted out that the problem in Virginia uh, was that Virginia failed to have several gun control laws on the books. And so he said Virginia, for example, had no background checks, which, by the way, was a lie, since every purchase from a gun store goes through a background check, and the shooter actually bought his gun from a store. Uh, From also mentioned he also faulted Virginia for having no licensing, which was an ignorant statement because the gunman, as a resident of Illinois, had a license to own a firearm. They're they're known in Illinois as the FOID card. Uh, From also uh, said that Virginia had no registration, which again ignores the fact that the gunman was registered as a gun owner because of his FOID card, not that that did anything to stop the crime. Uh, From also faulted Virginia because there is, in his words, no permit required for concealed carry of long guns in Virginia, which, you know, Remzo is just a really stupid thing to say because no one actually concealed carries long guns. So gun control was completely ineffective in preventing this shooting. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what the situation is. And as far as Frum was concerned, though, he had a long list of things to blame, you know, all the the laws that he thought were at fault or too weak, but nowhere did he actually blame the shooter, who turned out to be quite a hate-filled individual. In fact, he's a left-wing Bernie Sanders supporter who frequently railed against Republicans. So, you know, in fact, all of this blame shifting kind of reminds me of former New York City Mayor David Dinkins. After a visitor from Utah was stabbed to death on the subway, no lie, Dinkins held a press conference to say they needed more gun control. I mean, that's a gun controller's logic for you. A man gets stabbed to death, so it must mean we need more gun control. So is, isn't Mayor Dinkins the same guy who signed a ban on you know the many types of long guns in the 90s? And, and then the police, of all people, went to people's doors to confiscate those very guns. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, uh, Dinkins, uh, you know, what he did there, by the way, shows the dangers of gun registration. I mean, that, that example from New York City is primo uh, example of the problems with gun registration and how those lists can later be used as a gun confiscation list. That's exactly what happened in New York City. They registered the long guns in the 1960s and then banned and confiscated many of those guns under Dinkins. 
But, you know, Dinkins is part of that hypocritical elite that we talked about in the first podcast. They want guns for me, but not for thee. But those same civilized, you know, the, the, let's let's use a progressive term, the 1%, the elites, they show the crack in their own arguments. Because why would the same people telling you to surrender your arms surround themselves with armed guards? I mean, think of Jim Carrey. I, I highly doubt that his bodyguards are walking around of nothing, of all people. And he did the whole, you know, cold head, de- uh, cold cold dead hands parody and everything else when he was making fun of the NRA and Charleston Heston. But it it all comes down to this control. I want to say it one more time. Control. You cannot drive without a car. You can't speak without a voice and you can't fire. You can't fight fire. Am I bad? You can't fight fire without fire. I mean, Thomas Jefferson said it best. I prefer dangerous freedom over peaceful slavery. Yeah, exactly what you're saying, Remzo. We dealt with that in the second podcast. One mark of a slave is that they're disarmed. They're unable to protect themselves or to resist abuses that are inflicted upon them. And that's why the question of where our rights come from is so important. You know, if, if you don't agree with our Declaration of Independence and you don't view all people as having rights that are endowed by their Creator— then what happens is the 51% majority will decide what our rights are and who is entitled to them. And we only have to look at our own history to see how this can be abused. You know, we spent a lot of time dealing with that in the second podcast, and we saw examples from all around the world, and we looked at examples in this country all the way up to the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., who tried to get a carry permit after his home was bombed. But he was denied that permit. You know, it's a classic example of the majority telling the minority they can't enjoy the same rights as the majority does. And that's why being disarmed must always be viewed as a curse. On the other hand, an armed people are a free people. I love what Condoleezza Rice had to say about this. She was uh, Secretary of State under George Bush. And in an article that she penned for the Washington Post magazine back in 2001, she wrote about how privately owned guns saved her community. Rice talks about how when she was a child, her dad would join with other dads who got out their shotguns and formed nightly patrols guarding the streets themselves. And that visual, seeing African-American fathers protecting the neighborhood from the KKK, that left an indelible mark on her. It's one of the reasons she's such a strong opponent of gun control, because she says that if there had been gun registration, then people like the infamous police commissioner, Bull Connor, could have used gun registration to disarm her father and others who were patrolling their neighborhoods in the 1960s. See, that's been the history of gun control. It's used to control people, as you were just saying earlier. And despite all the arguments that gun control makes people safer, time and time again, we see that's just simply not the case. Yeah, Eric, it kind of reminds me, I was recently reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. And for those of you that know your history, he's far, far, far from a right winger by any sense of the term. But he was doing an interview on this one talk show. And, you know, when he was talking about whether or not, I think the host brought this up, or do you find, you know, an alliance of the left, an alliance of the liberals, the Democrats? At one point he said, you know, the fox, when it goes hunting the lamb, it, it doesn't just 
automatically go out and just go jumping at it, lunging towards it. it. It lures the lamb in. It makes it feel comfortable. And then when the lamb has its eyes closed for a second, it goes after him. Whereas with a wolf, you know, the wolf is a lot more brutal. It just goes after him. A lot of these laws that are meant to, you know, protect people, that are meant to, you know, stand up for minority rights, civil rights, they're not really protecting anyone. What they make you do is they make you dependent. They make you, you know, in an aspect, as we've been mentioning, very subservient slaves to an extent. You're safe. Don't worry. I will protect you. But half the time, it's the people that are saying that they're protecting you, that they're going to go after you. So let's talk about the modern gun control movement in America, Eric. Who are the movers and shakers behind the effort to actually limit our gun rights? Well, the names and faces in Congress are always changing, but the movement began in earnest in the 1970s with a group called the National Coalition to Control Handguns. Now, that's an interesting name, isn't it? National Coalition to Control Handguns. Uh, They later morphed into Handgun Control Incorporated and then later became the Brady Campaign. But getting back to the group under its first name, Pete Shields was their chairman then. And in 1976, Chairman Shields publicly laid out a three-step strategy for gun control supporters. And anybody can read this for themselves. You can go on the web and you can get the July 26th, 1976 copy of the New Yorker magazine. Well, in this interview, Shields says this. He says, the first problem is to slow down the number of handguns being produced and sold in this country. The second problem is to get handguns registered. The final problem is to make possession of all handguns and all handgun ammunition, except for the military police, licensed security guards, licensed sporting clubs, and licensed gun collectors, totally illegal. So there you have it. I mean, Shields lays out this three-step process to go from the status quo to then go to gun registration to then gun bans and confiscation. And the irony is that, you know, supporters uh, or anti-gun supporters, uh, you know, while they have not deviated from this approach at all, they're galled by the fact that Shields laid out that strategy so openly. I was debating a member of that group in the 1990s, and at that time they were known as Handgun Control. But I read that quote from Shields on the air, and to my amazement, my opponent said, oh, he doesn't believe that anymore. Yeah, right. Well, I, I said, well, of course he doesn't. He's dead. And the guy looked at me like I just punched him in the gut. I mean, he was stunned. You would have thought that I just insulted his mother on live television. He had no idea Shields had died in in 93. In fact, he probably, Remzo, had no idea that his former chairman had ever made that statement about gun confiscation. And so he was just making up the, oh, he doesn't believe that anymore line on the fly. I mean, he had no idea I'd call his bluff. Even to this day... The Brady campaign will openly deny that they agree with Pete Shields on this point of making guns totally illegal. The problem is they're on record supporting gun bans, including the D.C. gun ban, which was a total gun ban for the public. When the D.C. gun ban was before the Supreme Court in 2008, the Brady campaign submitted an an amicus brief in favor of that ban. So what did the D.C. law do that they were favoring? Well, the D.C. law made it illegal for average people to own guns. You couldn't own a a handgun in the district, and you could only own a long gun unless it was disassembled, in other words, not useful for self-defense, and you were grandfathered in. And, you know, their amicus brief to the court 
I tell you, it would have made Peach Shields proud. But look, gun controllers today realize that they're way out of step with the American public in their desire to ban guns. So what they do is they try to make it sound like they're only interested in small incremental restrictions. And that's just not the case. It's not surprising that these gun controllers support a total gun ban. I mean, this is what we see with them pushing in cities across the country and even in Congress. But, Eric, let's start knocking out some of the common gun control arguments that we frequently hear. You know, let's get to the meat of this. How about this one? Common sense gun control would save lives. I mean, I remember Bernie Sanders, you know, calling that throughout the campaign. We need common sense gun legislation. I mean, we need more common sense gun safety laws. Is that that the case? I (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Well, actually, the reality is just the opposite. Gun control makes no sense because criminals don't obey the laws. You know, we talked about this in our first podcast, how gun-free zones are a major failure because, if anything, they become the places that actually attract criminal activity, so much so that 98% of public mass shootings occur in these gun-free zones. So really, there's simply no rational reason to say that gun control saves lives. For it to work, bad guys would have to start obeying the law, which is, you know, a contradiction. So, okay, I'm going to throw this one at you. I've heard people point out to President Ronald Reagan, and what they say is that some gun restrictions are okay because, after all, a conservative like Ronald Reagan, you know, supported the so-called assault weapons ban. But, you know, what about that? Does that make the pro-gun side look extreme if they're not to the right of Ronald Reagan? No, but look— It's true that Reagan did support some gun control, but then again, that's exactly why we have a Bill of Rights. That's why we have a Constitution. Our freedoms don't depend on who is in the White House or who is in the Congress or who sits on the Supreme Court. And, you know, as we've already been talking about, they don't depend on the vote of the 51 percent majority. So really, public polling should have nothing to do with defining what our rights are. Our Constitution is the highest man-made law, and the Second Amendment in that Constitution says that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. You know, that language trumps what politicians think or whatever the polls say. And really, more importantly, our founding fathers said that our rights come from God, and that's why our Declaration of Independence says that our rights are inalienable. By the way, Inalienable means they can't be infringed or limited in any way, shape, or form, uh, which is uh, you know kind of what the Second Amendment says, right? Shall not be infringed. So again, it doesn't matter what Ronald Reagan believed about guns. It doesn't matter what the polls say. Our rights have a much firmer foundation. Because they come from God and because they're protected by our Constitution, the government has no business restricting the free exercise of those rights by law-abiding people. You know, there's this meme on Facebook I keep seeing around where it shows a painting of the drafting of the—I'm de- of the. I'm sorry, it was the U.S. Constitution at the Constitutional Convention. And beneath the picture it says, okay, guys, if something really, really bad happens, we're just going to throw all this out. So it, it just popped up in my mind. But, you know, Eric, here, here's another big thing. What about background checks? On, on one hand, I already hear you saying that background checks are an infringement of people's rights. But Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. I mean, it, it puts people's God-given rights on hold. I mean, what's the deal with that? Because I know a lot of Republicans, you know, I strange enough, I know some libertarians that say, I'm okay if a background check. I mean, what's the deal with that? Well, 
for starters, you know, people talk about, yeah, what's wrong with the instant check? You know, doesn't, isn't it good to try to keep guns out of the wrong hands? And the thing is, is that those wrong hands, you know, the ones that shouldn't have the guns, they still get guns through other means, like stealing them. I mean, after all, what did the Sandy Hook shooter do when he couldn't pass a background check in 2012? Well, he murdered his first victim and stole her firearms, which he then used to perpetrate his horrific crime at the Connecticut school. You know, same thing with Jacob Tyler Roberts, who shot up the Clackamas Mall in Oregon. That was uh, actually a couple weeks prior to Sandy Hook. He stole the AR-15 he used. He didn't go through a background check. And then there's that sad case of Kate Steinle. You know, she's the one that Donald Trump mentions all the time, the one that was murdered by an illegal alien. You know, but wait a minute, an undocumented alien can't pass a background check. So how did that killer get his gun? Well, (laughs) the gun that killed her was stolen from a federal officer. And yeah, on and on it goes. Bad guys can steal the guns they use in crime, which means that, you know, they're easily able to bypass the background check. You know, consider this. If bad guys were really getting stopped by the FBI background check, then why is it that only 32 bad guys a year are referred for prosecution for illegally trying to buy guns? Now, that's the Justice Department's own figures. There are more than 20 million guns sold in this country every year, and yet only 32 bad guys are caught trying to buy a gun and referred for prosecution. You see, that figure is the real test of the law's any law's effectiveness or ineffectiveness, I guess, as the case may be, because if a real bad guy tries to buy a gun but isn't incarcerated, then actually he's still out on the street and is able to steal a gun or buy one on the black market. So if background checks aren't stopping bad guys from buying guns, then who are they actually stopping? Well, people who shouldn't be stopped. You know, roughly 95% of the Knicks' denials are false positives, which means most of the people who are being denied are not the people who want to hold up the neighborhood grocery store. You know, some of the people who are stopped are barred because they have the same name as a bad guy, which, by the way, it's not a problem unique to the Knicks background check system. Uh, you know, it also happens with the, the no-fly list, which has kept even senators and congressmen from flying because they shared the same name with a bad guy. You might remember uh, the late Senator Ted Kennedy was blocked about five times from getting on planes. But it gets worse. Because it's not just people with the same name who are being denied the ability to purchase a gun. Good people can be denied their Second Amendment rights for things like outstanding traffic tickets that result in a bench warrant or for having engaged in a bar fight 50 years ago. That's happened uh, to some military guys, uh, former military guys who can't buy guns because of a bar fight, uh, you know, when they were uh, in their early 20s. Or, you know, things like check kiting. I mean, you know, obviously it's something that's illegal, certainly not deserving of a lifetime gun ban. So you see, while these people have some kind of infraction on their record or, uh, you know, they have the same name uh, as a bad guy, they're certainly not the dangerous kind of people who are committing gun crimes. That's why only 32 bad guys a year are even referred for prosecution. And by the way, for the last year on record, only 13 of them were actually incarcerated. Yeah, so for all the millions upon millions of dollars that we spend on our background check system, screening millions of people who are buying guns, only 13 people were removed from society 
and physically prevented from buying a gun during the last year on record. See, and, and that's the point. Real bad guys don't try to buy a gun from gun stores. They steal them or they use straw buyers to purchase them. And the police know this. You know, by an overwhelming two-to-one margin, police say that making it easier for individuals to carry concealed firearms would do far more to make Americans safer than strengthening background checks. I mean, that's that's incredible. I'm dumbfounded. 95%, that's 95% of initial denials under the background check system are these false positives. But while this is a, an upsetting thing and, you know, it's a tragic number, can't these people just get their guns after they contact the FBI and explain their legal status? Because if they have a reason, I mean, any reasonable person would say, okay, you go ahead and get it, right? Well, you would think so. Now, for starters, you hope your name is not Carol Bound and you need your gun in an absolute emergency because someone is stalking you, right? I mean, we talked about her in the second podcast. She was murdered while waiting for the right to purchase a gun. Absolutely tragic. But in answer to your question, yeah, if the administration running the FBI is pro-gun, then you'll be able to pay money and challenge your denial. But if it's an anti-gun administration, you may be out of luck. You know, during the Obama administration, every single one of the FBI appeal examiners were illegally diverted to other duties. So that made it impossible for the FBI to overturn people's denials, and it created a huge backlog. By the time the Trump administration came into office, there was a gigantic backlog of 18 months. I mean, this was the backlog basically created by the Obama administration because they had transferred their appeal examiners to other duties. And so, you know, at GOA, we would get emails from people saying things like, hey, uh, I was illegitimately denied a gun purchase at, you know, like Dick's Sporting Goods or something like that. I've passed the Nick's background check in the past, but I was denied this time. There's no reason I should be denied. I filed an appeal with the FBI, but they're telling me there's a backlog of 18 months. I mean, we've gotten those kind of emails. 18 months. Good people having their right to purchase a gun for self-defense put on hold for 18 months. You know, would we put up with that if the people's right to vote was being put on hold for a year and a half while we get around to checking them out? Or can you imagine slapping background checks on the First Amendment, you know, uh, so people would have to wait 18 months to broadcast a TV news program or preach a sermon? I mean, all in the name of preserving truth and accuracy, right? <laughs> I'd be out of right? business at that point. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, that would be outrageous. So why do we tolerate it for the Second Amendment and for Second Amendment rights? But see, this gets back to what we were talking about earlier. Background checks should be viewed as an unconstitutional infringement. They do nothing to stop real bad guys from getting guns, but they're used time and time again to harass good people, making it more difficult for them to get firearms. These infringements are are so absolutely startling. And, you know, are there other kinds of abuses you could tell me about? I mean, what has GOA done about it? What are they still doing about it? Well, many examples of abuse, and all of this goes back to the fact that we live in a day when our constitutionally protected, God-given rights have been reduced to mere privileges that are doled out by government officials. But take military veterans. Because of the Nick's background check system, there are now more than 250,000 military vets who cannot purchase firearms. And this is because they suffer from ailments like PTSD or from memory issues resulting from wartime injuries. And they've had another family member appointed to handle their financial affairs. So our laws 
disqualify them from protecting themselves or their families uh, by purchasing a firearm or possessing a firearm. And that's even though they've committed no crimes, even though they have not been adjudicated in a court of law as lawbreakers, they cannot legally own guns. Same thing, by the way, almost happened to another large group of people. Uh, The Obama administration tried to take what was being done to the military vets and expand it to thousands of otherwise law-abiding seniors. And so President Obama imposed the senior gun ban by executive fiat. Now, thankfully, groups like Gun Owners of America were able to work through Congress to get legislation passed and sent to President Trump, who signed a repeal of the senior gun ban into law. Um, you know, Jiway, by the way, has also been working to get the veterans gun ban repealed as well. We've been able to push it through the House, which voted to repeal it in March of 2017, but the Senate has yet to act on it. So I'm just kind of curious, would you consider gun owner registration being another example of abuse that comes from background checks or not? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because every time a gun dealer contacts the FBI NICS system and a background check is conducted, there is the potential that gun buyers' names will be retained despite all the prohibitions to the contrary. And look, that's a constant concern of gun owners, which, by the way, uh, it was part of the three-step process that Pete Shields supported, right? You register guns first before you make them illegal and confiscate them. And again, that's exactly what New York City did from the 1960s to the 1990s. And so anyway, this is why gun owners are very wary of this. The threat of gun owner registration at the national level is very real. Speaking of which, I wonder, did you see the media reports in 2016 showing that the ATF had been caught accidentally registering law-abiding gun owners? Now, I'm using my fingers right now as air quotation marks. Accidentally. That's how the media reports put it. You know, the General Accounting Office caught the ATF breaking the law, and media reports say they were caught accidentally retaining the names of thousands of gun owners. Of course, what happens if a military veteran with PTSD accidentally possesses a firearm? You think the media and the federal government will just look at that as a mere oversight? Uh, Yeah, hardly, right? But see, that's the problem with background checks. They give the name of every gun buyer to the federal government, and it gives the feds the potential to create and maintain a registration list. So let's take a look at this from, you know, one more gun control argument that we frequently hear. And obviously, you know, former President Barack Obama was not necessarily the biggest friend of the Second Amendment. Oh, he was really? <laughs> he, he was he was a huge supporter of firearm restrictions. Uh, you know, one of the things he used to say was that gun violence in this country has no parallel anywhere else in the world. And yet he would compare our murder rates to those of, you know, those in Europe and Australia and, you know, et cetera, other countries. H- how would you respond to that? I would say this. Look, the United States is not even in the top 100 of countries when it comes to murder rates. We are in the safest bottom half. And guess what? All of the countries in the top half with the highest 100 murder rates, all of them have stricter gun control than the United States. See, gun haters like Barack Obama always want to cherry pick the countries they compare to the United States. They want to talk about countries like England and Canada even though they had lower murder rates before they enacted their gun control laws. Their murder rates uh, have actually risen since passing gun control. But they want to then ignore countries like Venezuela, which banned the private ownership of guns in 2012 and then later enforced that ban with gun confiscation. 
you know, they have one of the highest murder rates in the world. Their murder rate is almost 20 times higher than it is in the United States. Um, you know, they also want us to focus on our northern neighbor, Canada, but then they ignore Mexico to the south, which has very strict gun control. I mean, it is really hard there, actually almost impossible for a private citizen to own a legal gun. And yet Mexico's murder rate is three times higher than ours. Um, you, you know, in the second podcast, we talked about how the comparisons to Europe ignore the fact that Europe averaged at least 200,000 murders per year during the 20th century. That's if you include the mass murders committed by the Nazis. So that's a murder rate that's over 10 times higher than the rate in the U.S. Plus, gun controllers always ignore the fact that the places in our country where guns are easily available are actually the safest places. FBI reports show that two-thirds of our nation's murders occur in just 5% of the counties. In other words, it's the places like Chicago, places like Baltimore and Washington, D.C. It's those places which are driving up our national murder rate. And guess what? Those are the places that have the strictest gun control laws in the country. But places, on the other hand, where guns are easily available and where citizens can easily carry concealed, like Vermont and New Hampshire, and even a thriving Washington, D.C. suburb like Fairfax County, Virginia, these places have a murder rate that is as low or lower than England, Australia, or Canada. It, it's so helpful to get this from you know an additional perspective. I mean, you definitely don't hear this from the fake news media. I'm talking about you, Chris Cuomo. Well, <laughs> folks, we're going to have to wrap it up here today. We, we've talked about the movers and the shakers and the gun control movement, and what Eric did was we refuted the arguments they frequently raise. In our next podcast, we'll go ahead and talk about how you can help stop gun control in its tracks, you know, firing back, so to speak. And, and you'll see how GOA has been at the forefront of mobilizing grassroots activists like yourself to kill anti-gun legislation in Congress. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Um, you know, anyway, please make sure to subscribe on iTunes you know, go ahead and give us a rating and review while you're there. And, you know, be sure to follow GOA on Facebook and Twitter and be in the loop for everything you need to know to keep up to date. Tune in next week for our newest episode of Firing Back. And don't forget, GOA is the only no-compromise gun lobby in D.C. Stay up to date with the latest news and updates by visiting gunowners.org.